The Athletic. He kind of has come from nowhere and is starring in, like you say, probably one of the top five sides in Europe at the moment. I can't remember the last time where someone just burst onto the scene like that. This is the Athletic Football Tactics Podcast. Thank you for joining us. This week, to quote Claudio Ranieri, we are in Champions League, man. Dilly ding, dilly dong, come on. A small notebook-style look at the teams that have progressed from the group stages and that will be heading into the knockout stage, which starts in February. I'm Ali Maxwell. I've got Michael Cox with me. Hello, Michael. Hi, Ali. T-minus three weeks until the World Cup, the road to Qatar, gets closer. Yeah, it's still weird, isn't it? I still can't really get my head around it. It should be about three weeks between the end of a season and the World Cup. The fact that the players will be playing a week before pretty much the tournament starts. I still, yeah, can't get my head around it. But uh, I'm sure when the tournament gets going, we'll enjoy it. Mark Carey, excited? Very excited, yeah. I've been working away, getting something prepared, which uh, will be clear to people very soon. A massive uh, piece of work that have been working on for a while, looking at um, the best players to be playing Ooh. in the World Cup. So look out for that. Little data scouting piece, is it? Indeed, indeed. Mm. Couple of charts, a few radars. Many, many, many charts. Well, I won't press you any further, but looking forward to that. Now, uh, if last week's podcast where we spoke about set pieces quite broadly, that was probably more possession heavy, a patient approach when tackling that topic, a more measured approach. This week, I'd say we're switching it up. Uh, Horses for courses. This podcast will be much more direct, looking to to make the most of those transitional moments between topics and attack with speed. So uh, buckle up, Champions League, group stage review, knockout preview mixed all together. Uh, And guys, the favourites to win the Champions League is where we'll start. That's Manchester City. Pep Guardiola's team uh, did uh, well, made fairly light work of the group stage and using average odds from UK bookmakers, uh, they are down for a 36% chance of winning this tournament with Bayern second favourites around 16 or 17%. Uh, Michael, does that generally make sense to you? Manchester City being pretty strong favourites. I was a little bit surprised they were such strong favourites. I'm not much of a gambler, but I did have a look at the odds after you mentioned that. And they do seem very short, don't they? Um, But then I suppose who else? I mean, there haven't been that many impressive sides in in Europe so far this season. Liverpool clearly have gone off the boil. Bayern's domestic record has not been great. Um, Barcelona obviously have gone out of the competition. PSG, I think, probably will still have the issues with defensive structure they've had in previous years. Um, so you're looking at Real Madrid, I suppose. But yeah, City, you have to say, are probably very strong favourites. And they are a more complete side than they've been in previous years. I think that's fair to say. With the addition of Haaland, they've got a, a world-class number nine, which they haven't had since the peak of Sergio Aguero. I think Akanji at the back has been quite an underrated addition as well. I think he's done very well in, in some of the bigger games. So yeah, all things considered, uh, I'm not sure I'd take them at that short a price, but they they are looking pretty good. For you personally, the way that you think about football, make predictions for things like this, should the fact that Man City have not won it before, have not won it yet under Pep Guardiola, make them, what should that make a difference? Does that make them, in your eyes, less probable to win it um, compared to other teams? Or do you not put much importance on previous seasons? I suppose it probably is a factor. I think when it's been, I mean, City have been the favourites or close to the favourites almost every year under Guardiola. 
Guardiola obviously went three years at Bayern without winning it as well, when I think, again, they probably started each campaign as the favourites. I think you probably have to say it does play a part. I mean, you know, they're the anti-Real Madrid in that sense, aren't they? Real Madrid, I, I don't usually fancy them at the start of the year, particularly when they play as they do in the group stages, and yet they do have the experience, they do have the know-how, and they certainly don't have any kind of psychological issue in the latter stages. And maybe the more time goes on, Maybe the more you have to say that uh, about Manchester City. But uh, yeah, that's uh, it's such a long way until the final, isn't it? Especially mm. this year with the World Cup in the way. It feels extraordinary. I don't want to be a stereotype and, I don't know, just fall into what could be an easy statement, but it feels like the only person stopping Pep Guardiola from winning with Manchester City could be Pep Guardiola. Like You just think maybe in the quarterfinals, the semifinals, he takes out Erling Haaland just when, you know, they've got a, a big opportunity to to really take the game by the, the scruff of the neck or something where they objectively have the, the best squad of any team in the Champions League, I believe. Um, but you just think if anyone's going to stop them, it, it may be Guardiola. And he's done it in the past. Um, I think that's a very... I don't think he did anything wrong last year against Real Madrid. I think his subs made sense. I thought the Champions League final people exaggerated... Uh, the relevance of the lack of Rodri or, or uh, Fernandino, I don't think that really had a big impact on the game. The the one time I think where he did probably get things wrong was the defeat to Lyon in 2020 when it was that weird Champions League when it was played over one leg because of uh, because of the pandemic. And he played a really, he, he changed shape. He played three at the back. He played a really defensive side, I thought. Um, and I thought that backfired quite dramatically. Um, so yeah it's, it's been a mixed bag I'm not one of these people who thinks that every year they go out it's because Guardiola's got his tactics wrong um, but there have been a couple of occasions it's fair to say and more broadly we cannot and won't question Pep Guardiola's tactics in general it's proven to win titles score a lot of goals and, and not concede very many specifically for Champions League knockout rounds knockout matches do you think there is a certain style that suits Champions League football knockout it's a good question. And the answer is I don't really know. I, I think 10 years or so ago, you would tend to say that slightly more defensive sides prosper in the Champions League. I mean, you take someone like Rafa Benitez, who was regarded as a real European specialist, although his teams often struggle to get over the line in uh, domestic competition. I'm not sure that's the case now. The, the Champions League knockout games in recent years seem to be increasingly chaotic Lots of goals end to end. So I don't know. I, I mean, there seem to be so many games that are decided in the closing stages. We're also more likely to have extra time than in previous years because there's no away goals rule. So I guess teams who have good substitutes and managers who know how to use substitutes can prosper. That was certainly the case for Ancelotti and Real Madrid last season. So stylistically, I don't know. I'm not sure there is necessarily a factor but I do think with this season and the nature of it and the World Cup coming in the middle if you're a side that relies a lot on energy I think you're probably going to struggle this season the second favourites uh, for the Champions League uh, as we are now are Bayern Munich now I should point out that I mentioned the bookmaker odds that might be influenced by the fact that they are UK bookmakers and, and perhaps there's a disproportionate amount of people betting on English teams and therefore um, the price moves accordingly. Uh, the 538 Projections website, which is objective, which is not betting related, is more positive on Bayern, giving them a 24% chance to win the Champions League with Man City at 25%. So there are other schools of thought in the uh, data and probability world. Bayern, six from six, in the group stage, a group in, including Inter and Barcelona, it's, um, another amazing 
losing group stage for FC Bayern. Uh, they haven't lost a group stage match since September 2017. It's quite interesting to talk about them tactically after just speaking about Man City. City having added Erling Haaland, a number nine. Bayern Munich having lost the best striker in the world over the last few years in Robert Lewandowski. Michael, how are they playing this season without Lewandowski? Yeah, I mean, as you'd expect, they're, they're much more flexible. Mane sometimes played as the, the focal point, for want of a better word. Sometimes it's been Muller. In recent weeks, it's been uh, Eric Maxim promoting. But yeah, there's um, there's more fluidity, there's more flexibility. I think when it comes to the latter stage of the Champions League, Nagelsmann will be able to do some things that the opposition manager won't expect. But I think it's tough to really get your head around how good Bayern are. I mean, they've dropped some silly points in league games. Um, they're actually not top of the league at the moment because Union Berlin are top. Although I, I suspect that situation will uh, will change quite soon. Um, but yeah, once again, it's just so hard. I mean, they've been very good in the group stage, but it's so hard to assess how good they'll be in the knockout stage considering it's what, three months away. That flexibility marks reflected in those who are scoring goals for them. I mean, Mane and Sane and Eric Chupamoting, former Stoke City, of course. They've got 10 goals between them this season. So it's very much spreading the load post Lewandowski. Yeah, Chupamoting's been chipping in really healthily with some some goals recently. That one uh, against Inter uh, this week was an unbelievable goal. Um, we spoke about Jamal Musiala as well um, in previous episodes of just how well his attacking numbers are, are looking the best of his young career so far. Um, Mane has been an interesting one because he's he sort of settled, ultimately he has settled at Bayern, but he, he made a really good start. I think he scored four goals in his first four games. And then I think he went five matches without scoring a goal. So mm-hmm. I don't know whether that was because he was maybe being played a little bit more centrally, which he did do for Liverpool in the, the latter half of last season, but was just was a little bit more suited to playing off the left. Um, and since she promoting has sort of come in again, been a bit more of a focal point to distract the, the defenders than, uh, than Mane's been really good in coming off the left again. Um, and he was a little bit isolated at times before um, before a bit of the, the change. But as Michael said, they've got so many different uh, options in attacking areas that if it's not going to be Mane, it'll be Sane, it'll be Musiala, it'll be Serge Gnabry. Thomas Muller is maybe not as prolific. We know that that's not his role, but he can, of course, chip in with some important goals as well. So to have that many attacking options across the field, then it's no wonder they are one of the favourites. Here's another teaser for you, Michael. Is there more value, do you think, in Bayern being flexible, as you've discussed, Nagelsmann having more options tactically and perhaps more options in terms of personnel, um, which could confuse opponents or, or make them hard to prepare for in the latter stages? Or is it better to have Robert Lewandowski and a more set way of playing and more set way of attacking? I think there's, there's there's obviously positives to playing both ways. I think sometimes if if you do have a manager who is prone to quote overthinking, sometimes just having a striker who has to play in the same position every week can help in terms of familiarity. And of course, you can be flexible around that. Um, but we'll have to wait and see with Nagelsmann. Okay, let's move on to the next little batch of teams, which in the using these prediction sites and the bookmakers is really PSG, uh, Liverpool and Real Madrid. Now, PSG did not top their group, Michael. On Wednesday night, Benfica pipped them to the group title. I'm still a little confused as to how they had the same number of wins, same number of draws, the same number of goals scored, goals conceded, points, and both matches between the teams was a draw. (laughs) What happened here? 
Yeah, they went through an away goals, the return of the away goals, um, which is quite bizarre. I didn't know that was ever a factor in um, in settling groups. It's a bit like winning a Cricket World Cup on boundaries mm-hmm. scored, as far as I'm mm-hmm. concerned. But uh, yeah, it's um, it was a good group and it was really good. I watched the second half of the, um, the Benfica game and they scored some outrageous goals. Six goals from about 1.7 XG or something like that. Let's touch on Benfica then. The group winners, clearly full of confidence, uh, as shown by the finishing on Wednesday night. Roger Schmidt's Benfica, they are having no issues domestically. Uh, top of the Portuguese league and through here, top of the group. They feel like a real you know, team to keep a pretty close eye on based on their performances. Yeah, they're looking really good domestically in the league. They've only drawn one game. They've won all the others. They nearly went out the cup to a second division team, I think. They had to rely on penalties to get through. But they've been really impressed in the Champions League. I mean, to hold PSG to two one-all draws. I watched one of those games uh, and it was actually tremendously boring. But credit to, to Benfica for making a game boring when you look at PSG's attacking players. Um and they were, yeah, they were really impressive last night. Scored so many goals. They were without Enzo Fernandez, the midfielder, who's been one of the best players this season. I just hope they don't lose players in the January window. I've got this theory that because the World Cup is such a, a shop window for players, that maybe there'll be more movement than we're accustomed to in the in the January window. I could be completely wrong on that. But I think one of the nice things about this season's Champions League is that you've got a few sides from you know, slightly lesser nations uh, going through. And Benfica, not a shock to see them progressing because Benfica, huge club, great history, etc. But for them to top the group ahead of PSG, I think is a really impressive achievement. I mean, on the note of the, the players who have performed well, I want to give a shout out to Gonzalo uh, Ramos, who's just been fantastic for them so far this season. Really exciting, young, uh, 21-year-old player. He's, he's really quick, he's powerful. He's able to score all different kinds of goals. I think he got a, uh, a header uh, this week in, in the Champions League. I think he's scored seven goals in his opening 10 games already in the league uh, so far this season. And you think about Darwin Nunes obviously leaving Benfica, who's going to provide the the goal cover um, in the absence of of Nunes. And he's stepped up and he's having the so far the best uh, season of his career in the numbers and still so, so young. So he's the sort of player, I think, who may be um, sort of in the, the market for a move if the so-called bigger clubs not with the grace of respect to Benfica could be uh, circling if not in January then, then maybe the summer uh, of course not ideal for PSG to finish second also not ideal for a lot of the the group toppers really PSG now sort of looming large in that pool of second place finishes Michael it's basically the same question around PSG at this point every year over the last few years is there anything different about them this year under Christophe Galtier you know generally we discuss how their weakness has been off the ball intensity and structure and that has really hindered them in the in the latter stages of this competition. Yeah, I've still got the same concerns about them. I mean, the structure is different. They're playing 3-4-2-1 kind mm-hmm. of with Messi and, and Neymar behind Mbappe. And I must say, with the ball, it's worked really well. I mean, their ability to find space between the lines is, uh, yeah, probably not seen anything like that before. Defensively, yeah, it's the same issues Uh or maybe you could say slightly different issues because they've got one extra player at the back and one fewer player in midfield. And I think they do often look a little bit overrun in the centre of the pitch. Um, we know that Verratti is not the most mobile and does seem to spend a lot of his time on his backside desperately sliding to a ball that is just 
half a meter away from him. So I do wonder how PSG will will fare if they use that system against I don't know. I mean, who they could get anyone good, couldn't they? they could get Manchester City in the next round. Um, so yeah, I think they're better going forward than they were. Uh, but maybe, maybe as weak defensively, I guess. I mean, once again, I'm saying this for every for every club, but the knockout stage is so far away, and I do wonder whether Messi uh, and Neymar in particular, and to a certain extent Mbappe. In fact, maybe Mbappe as well, considering he's he's supposedly not that happy in Paris. Whether they're really timing their run of form for the World Cup, and they'll just give everything at the World Cup and will come back a little bit exhausted and maybe not quite as motivated. I could be wrong, but uh, if the three of those attackers can sustain their form all the way into May, I'd be pretty surprised. That's actually really interesting, yeah. I, I think watching some of the, the through balls that Messi has been playing in the league and Champions League is just ludicrous. So, I know we know his eye for a pass, but some of his actual assists so far this season have been incredible. But um, I actually looked at the numbers for PSG's defence. Um, I looked at their expected goals against. So obviously the quality of chances that they're giving up. Um, and that's been one or more expected goals against in 13 of their 19 games in all competitions this season. So it shows that they do give away chances, obviously for the opponent to score at least one goal but obviously they have the ridiculous attack to go and outscore them I think was it 4-3 against Troyes maybe last weekend or the weekend before that it's just if if you score two or three we'll score four or five it's it seems it's that sort of vibe because they just have uh, a FIFA style team at the, the top end some incredible scope for some fabulous narrative involving Mbappe versus Messi or Neymar versus Messi at the World Cup, depending on on which of those nations uh, goes deep. There really is. uh, That's going to be quite sensational, I think. Uh, Let's talk Liverpool, who have done well in the Champions League this season. Five wins out of six, albeit not enough to top their group uh, with Napoli so strong. We'll get on to them in a second. Plenty to discuss. But Mark, why do you think that Liverpool seem this season more comfortable in European competition uh, compared to in the Premier League? It's a tricky one. I think Liverpool have sort of historically struggled against sides who sit off them um, and they can't really break them down all that well. I mean, granted, for a couple of seasons now, they've been operating on a ridiculous level in, in all competitions. But I do think that in European competition, especially in the knockout rounds, um Liverpool are suited more so when the the opposition's going more toe-to-toe with them. So when the, the game opens up, um, Liverpool obviously like to exploit the space with with their front line, you know, more than anyone else. And I guess you think about the, the semi-final against Villarreal, where they really struggled to break Villarreal down a very organised side, but they had sort of similar issues uh, in that regard. So typically, I think in Champions League games and especially in in knockout rounds where Liverpool do often come into their own when you sort of try and go a bit more blow for blow in the battle Liverpool Liverpool's style and I guess experience in the competition often um, comes out on top in that regard I wonder if there's something about preparation time and knowledge from the opposition as well, Michael. Klopp has been in charge of Liverpool for, for so long now that most Premier League opposition will have played against Klopp's Liverpool um, you know, five, six, seven, eight, nine times over the last few years, whereas a lot of the teams they'll play in the Champions League um, will be far less uh, aware of, well, far, far less. They, they won't have the personal experience of Klopp's Liverpool and their chaos theory. 
And I think maybe it's not a Champions League versus league thing. It's maybe a kind of big games versus not big games thing. I've been impressed by Liverpool against strong opposition in the Premier League, but they seem to be slipping up against the lesser teams. Obviously, there are some exceptions to that. They did put nine goals past Bournemouth and they did play very badly against Manchester United. So there are some exceptions. But um, yeah, I don't know whether it's a fitness thing or a psychological thing, but it's it's almost like Liverpool can only play well at, you know, in patches uh, this season it's almost like they're saving those for big games don't know whether that's deliberate or accidental or whatever but that does seem to be a bit of a pattern for me so far uh, to be fair no shame in finishing second to Napoli who won their first five in the group stage before a late defeat at Anfield on Tuesday night uh, they've won eight in a row in Serie A our top of that table setting a ridiculous pace uh, Michael a Napoli currently a top five team in Europe, even better than that, perhaps? Yeah, I think they probably are in terms of ability. I think they might be a top one team in terms of excitement and how fun they are to watch. They've been great. And that performance against Liverpool, I think, still the best display of the Champions League so far. It was just sensational and, and really could have been a, an even greater margin of victory. They're not the most exciting team in European football, but they're definitely in the top one, to paraphrase mm-hmm. Mr Clough. Um, the most goals... In the group stage, across the Champions League, the highest XG by some distance. Um, Luciano Spalletti, I want to know about his tactics, basically. What's making them so exciting? What is it about his uh, coaching that's bringing the best out of this side? Well, they're really slick in possession. And I think uh, that Liverpool game showed it best. They're really good and integrated and structured with their movement. I think a lot of forward running from midfield. Sometimes the midfielders kind of end up in wider positions and Gita and Zielinski, which reminds me a little bit of the way Atalanta have played over the last few years. One of the interesting things about the Champions League uh, run for them is that they've played well with different centre-forwards. Uh, Osimhen, Raspadori and Simeone have all started two each up front. Simeone, I think, scored in four games, didn't he? Two as a substitute, two as a starter. And it feels like they have different approaches. I mean, Osimhen is very good in the channels. Raspadori is is very good at floating around and dropping deep and maybe Simeone is the closest to a, a proper battling number nine. But I mean, the the, the theme of Spalletti's career and, and the thing that I think he'll always be most well known for is, is playing without a conventional forward. I mean, it was him at Roma with Totti who kind of kick-started this, this approach of playing out uh, without a proper number nine. He, he definitely did something similar with in his time at Zenit when they were a pretty exciting team in European terms as well. So I guess it's a continuation of what we've seen from Spalletti throughout the last 15 years now. Some other very strong performance uh, on Gisa in midfield, who was, I was watching him play for Fulham about 15 months ago in the championship, uh, spoke to a, a Millwall player who played against him, a guy, a player called Jed Wallace, who now plays for West Brom, who said on played the last half an hour with a cigar on. That's how mm. comfortable he was. Uh, Zielinski as well uh, in midfield. But we have to touch on Gvaradona, Michael, because I've done enough with you to know that you do not throw out comparisons, extreme comparisons, for the sake of it. You certainly don't do it for clicks. Uh, and yet there is a name that I can see uh, on the notes, a name, well, the highest regard of any footballer of all time, basically. Well, you've you've compared him to Maradona in that uh, <laughs> sentence. I mean, I, I guess I'm doing the same one. He is quite messy, like the way the way he plays is, I think, pretty pretty early messy. I think it's fair to say the kind of twenty 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 one year old messy who was a 
a dribbler in wide areas rather than a, a prolific goal scorer or a brilliant through ball player. But he does have that kind of style that, you know, very comfortable in, in tight spaces, good at just bursting past opponents with a bit of a trick. And he is really exciting. And, and the fact that he's, you know, with all due respect to Georgia, he, he kind of has come from nowhere and is starring in, you know, like you say, probably one of the top five sides in Europe at the moment has probably been their standout player so far. I can't remember the last time where someone just burst onto the scene like that. I mean, maybe Mbappe with Monaco, um, but that was kind of a fairly established thing, like a, a player from the, the club's youth team getting into the first team and being really good. But yeah, I, I really was not aware of him uh, a year ago. And now you could say he's he's maybe the most exciting young player in Europe. I think the thing for me is that he just looks in his in his physique and plays like someone who isn't 21, who is 26, 27, just so kind of convincing on the ball. And granted, I'm saying this and we're saying that he's burst onto the scene. I've got to think about my small sample size, of course. We haven't <laughs> seen him across a full season. But still, you can just tell when there's a player who's got such quality on the ball and his numbers obviously do back it up. He's already into to double figures for goal contributions in Serie A this season. Eight goals and eight assists in all competitions as well, which is more than anyone else for Napoli. And I was trying to think about who he kind of reminded me of myself. And he sort of reminds me of Kevin De Bruyne, not in the sense that he is stylistically similar, but just how kind of emphatic he is with his actions. And he just always does the the right action at the right time and does it really well. And that's sort of what Kevin De Bruyne reminds me of. It doesn't look like he's maybe the most skillful, the most powerful or the fastest, but he is all of those things quite effortlessly. That's the biggest compliment I can pay to uh, Faradona. A lot of love at the moment for Napoli, the, the most exciting, entertaining team in elite European football. I wanted to find out a little bit more about Spalletti. So we asked James Horncastle earlier whether this style of play, this exciting attacking football was something new, whether this was something that Spalletti had been doing in his whole career. Spalletti is one of those coaches who coaches players, gets the best out of them, um, really finds a way to get under their skin, get into their heads, um, you know, plays fluid, attacking football, very vertical all about spaces, you know, play the ball where the, the player is going, not where he is. You know, it's just simple maxims like that. He's always been the coach he is right now. Um, it's just that things have got in the way of people talking about uh, his style of play. More attention has gone to him being the guy who retired Francesco Totti, um, him being into when Mario Cardi was uh, was was playing there, and you know Cardi's wife and agent would go on TV and criticise the team uh, as a pundit, which was her role then. And it's it's all kind of obscured Spalletti's uh, talent for coaching. Um, and yeah, it's just great to see that come to the fore again, uh, and the freshness of this team because. You know, he got Napoli back into the Champions League for the first time in a couple of years last year. That was already a great achievement, but the team kind of felt like it was at the end of a cycle. Uh, Koulibaly obviously moved to Chelsea. Uh, Mertens uh, left for Galatasaray and Senior went to Toronto FC. Um, and so the team has kind of been reinvigorated. And I think, you know, by signing a number of players who don't have any baggage in Naples at the moment. Um, you know, players who are not from Naples, who don't feel the weight of responsibility and pressure in the way that Insigne did. 
it's kind of liberated Napoli and you have this Napoli unleashed, which uh, has definitely been the most exciting team in Europe so far. Michael, Real Madrid topped their group, Leipzig going through uh, in second place. Uh, it wasn't plain sailing necessarily for Real in the group stages and we could probably say that most years in the last few years. Is there anything concerning in, in the defeat to Leipzig, for example, or the draw at Shakhtar? Or do we know now better than to look too deeply into Real Madrid group stage performances? Yeah, I would say the latter. Uh, they tend not to look particularly great in the group stage. I think it's also worth pointing out that the draw versus Shakhtar came just before the Classico, where I expect they had more than one eye on that fixture. So, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm sure by the time the knockout stage comes around, we'll be talking about them the same way we always do. And Mark, Tom Warville's RB Leipzig are through as well. They had uh, a bit of a uh, match day six showdown and it always feels to me like Nkunku and Soberslai, all the guys that Tom used to speak about before he went and joined RB. <laughs> um, these are the names that pop up time and time again, not anymore uh, just exciting prospects, but now performing, producing on the biggest stage of all. Absolutely. Yeah, I love that they are called Tom Warvel's Leipzig. Um, I'm going to forever call them that now. Um, yeah, no, completely agree. I think their their attack you can't really um, argue against. And I actually looked domestically at their uh, chances created, their expected goals, and it is the the second best in the Bundesliga, obviously behind Bayern Munich. But I think the main thing for them, and has been for quite some time now, is consistency uh, throughout the season in all competitions and being a little bit more solid at the back. So their expected goals against is the seventh best in the Bundesliga. So. I mean, that alone shows that their their attack is um, pretty strong, as we know, based on the p personnel, as you mentioned, um, but they just need to keep it a little bit tighter at the back. So when you think about Leipzig progressing through to the latter stages of um, of the Champions League, maybe that could be their, their Achilles heel, should we say. Leipzig went through Shakhtar's group stage performance, still memorable and remarkable given everything that they've been coping with uh, off the field. Uh, on that note... As of next week, a new series will be dropping on the Athletics Audio Podcast Network and I think it's going to be an extraordinary series and basically compulsory listening, I think, for, for football fans. The Athletic have been given inside access to Shakhtar throughout their Champions League campaign as they've competed against the world's best teams despite being unable to play games at their home stadium due to Russia's invasion of Ukraine. So over six episodes, you'll hear athletic writers Adam Crafton and Joey Durso bringing you Shakhtar's story of hope and horror, uh, tales from Kiev, Warsaw, Madrid and beyond on their Champions League odyssey as they cope with the impact of war uh, outside of football. In fact, we have a snippet for you. This is Dario Serna, uh, the former Croatia international, who's now Shakhtar's sporting director. Here's him praising the players' outstanding attitudes given the circumstances. For me, they're a hero, you know, to play with Sarins, training with Sarins, with Bomb, with this whole travel. Yesterday we start to, to travel 11.30 from Livo, we arrive in hotel 10 o'clock in the evening. But this is our, no one of them didn't say nothing bad, I'm tired, I'm not tired. We know what we must do. We are playing for Ukraine, for fans of Shakhtar, we are playing for Donetsk, for Donbas, for Kherson, for all Ukraine. We want to give some positive emotion from the pitch to our, to our uh, citizens, to whole Ukraine, the whole Ukrainian army. 
So the podcast series Away From Home will be out next week on Apple, on Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. It's going to be absolutely extraordinary to listen to. Uh, so, so please make sure that you look out for it next week. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. Other teams to touch on heading into the Champions League knockout stages. Why don't we talk about Tottenham Hotspur uh, and Chelsea. Uh, Michael, Spurs in, in their group, I mean, at half time of the final matches of this group stage, Sporting were top and Marseille were second. And by full time, Spurs were top and Frankfurt were second. So it was a, a fantastic group stage in terms of competitiveness. Um, Spurs specifically making heavy weather of it, perhaps, but coming out on top. Yeah, really poor in the first half, picked up in the second half. Um, but yeah, fantastic group. I mean... Uh... So many of these groups feel quite predictable, but that was completely unpredictable midway through the uh, through the final group game. It was fantastic. Anything tactical and specific to Spurs and the Champions League that's notable here as to whether as to why they might have made heavy weather of this group and also heading into the knockout stages? Do you think Conte's tactics generally work well in Champions League knockouts? Well, Conte hasn't actually participated in the knockout stage too many times as a manager, which is quite curious considering his success at league level. But he's often struggled to get his sides through the through the group phase. They haven't really progressed. I can't remember him even getting to the quarterfinals before. I could be wrong on that. Um, I've always found that a bit strange and maybe a bit of an anomaly, really, rather than anything kind of deep-rooted in his approach that doesn't suit the Champions League. I mean, he's he's got no issue with big games in league competition. Um, so yeah, we'll have to see how that goes. I'm looking forward to it. I think uh, he's an interesting manager, Conte. He's maybe not as flexible as some of the, you know, as Guardiola or Nagelsmann. He tends to keep a pretty solid approach, just changes between two systems, really. So uh, yeah, they're, they're the kind of side who in years gone by, I think would be quite well suited to Champions League competition because I think Conte's sides are usually good defensively. But uh, Tottenham have made some silly mistakes defensively in recent weeks and uh, and as we say it's not always the defensively solid sides these these days who who win the european cup yeah i mean throughout the whole of the the group stage four spurs i, I looked a little bit more closely and they conceded first in four of the the six games that they played so they gave themselves a bit of work to do throughout the group stage anyway in quite a few of those games and I guess making their life a little bit harder for themselves is maybe goes against the Conte style of play, as you say, Michael, keeping it defensively solid and tight and maybe a lower block and then being able to spring forward. If they're conceding first and they're having to to chase the game a little bit more, commit more players forward and, and open up a little bit more, which maybe goes against their their initial style of play from from minute one, I suppose. So you've got to think about the game state and all this. So I think if they'd have... You know, if they could have it their way, they wouldn't have chosen for it to be that way. But that kind of maybe has influenced why they've struggled and maybe stumbled over the line uh, to get through to the knockout stage. But again, you think from 
after Christmas when they've uh, obviously got the knockout games, maybe things will be a little bit different. You've certainly mentioned once or twice, Michael, that that you have felt Conte has come out second best in the tactical battle in, in some of the big games this season. Chelsea spring to mind, uh, albeit a positive result for them there, uh, and the Arsenal game as well, and, and in defeat to Manchester United. So that's certainly something I'll be looking out for uh, in the knockout stages of the Champions League. Then we have Eintracht Frankfurt. Uh, who were runners-up in Spurs' group. Of course, runners-up in the European Cup in 1959-1960 as well. So great pedigree in this competition. And, you know, incredible last few years for them to to get to the the top table of European football. Um, I don't think any of us have seen a huge amount of Frankfurt this season, so it'd be wrong for us to try and break them down in detail tactically, but certainly a team for us to watch uh, in the round of 16. Just looking at the the squad makeup, I really like what I've seen here because you have um, a, a group of recognisable and more experienced players like Kevin Trapp in goal, Mario Goetz is there, uh, Hasebe, of course, the 38-year-old, the Sebastian Ruder as well has a role. Uh, but then uh, outside of those four, nine of the 13 that have played the most minutes for Frankfurt this season are all between 20 and 26. Um, and all of these are guys who you'd think are, are kind of on the up and, and therefore um, have a real chance to impress on, on the biggest stage. So um, an, an incredible Group stage performance from Glasner, the manager uh, from this squad of players uh, as well. Uh, Chelsea under Graham Potter. Well, four wins from four for Potter in the Champions League. His predecessor, Tuchel, was sacked after uh, a a terrible start to the campaign, or in the eyes of the board anyway, a poor start to this Champions League campaign. Um, What have been the main features of Potter's Chelsea in the Champions League? Well, they've been uh, flexible, as you'd expect. The identity of the wing-backs has been interesting. At times it's been Sterling and Pulisic. And at times more conventional options. Maybe I should say they're not always really wing backs. They're more like wingers in a a bit of a you know diamond and three at the back and three up front. Um, but I think he's adjusted well. Potter, uh, you know, his first press conference he said he'd never even been to a Champions League game, <laughs> let alone manage one. Um, and they were in a, a tricky situation when he took over. So it's been uh, it's been really smooth. I think maybe the. It's worth pointing out they probably their toughest game on on paper was uh, away at Milan, and obviously Milan went down to ten men before half time, so that made their task a lot easier. Um, so it's difficult to assess them really in uh, in overall terms and how good they'll be towards the end of the campaign. But I think Potter deserves credit. He he certainly hasn't at all looked out of his depth at uh, at this level, which is a big step up, really. I think it's fair to say from managing. Uh, Ostersons and Swansea and then Brighton. Uh, so yeah, fair play to him. I'm interested in the way that he has approached things because it, I'm quite keen to make the comparison with Thomas Tuchel who came in uh, after the start of the season and then won the Champions League within a few months with Chelsea. Um, Roberto Di Matteo, of course, came in for Andre Villas-Boas and won the Champions League for Chelsea a few months into the season. So there's this kind of weird little quirky precedent, as is so often the case with Chelsea and changing managers and achieving success, maybe more so than other clubs seem to in the short term. But, But Tuchel, when he came in, I mean, he took over a Frank Lampard side. There was probably quite a lot to do tactically for him to... Or they're probably there are a few easy wins, shall we say, for someone who's a, a strong tactician like Tuchel. But straight away out of possession, Chelsea looked absolutely brilliant, and that was quite a big factor in their um, run to the final and then their victory over Manchester City. Strikes me, Michael, that if anything, Potter's Chelsea are taking quite a, an exciting, uh, quite 
gung-ho approach in terms of personnel, particularly in the wing-back positions. But you cannot say they're looking hugely solid defensively. I mean, even before the 4-1 loss against Brighton, you know, there were a lot of signs in the in the weeks prior that it was only Kepa's incredible form between the sticks that was, you know, keeping other teams at bay. Yeah, that is true. Um, and I think that's probably a calculated gamble from Potter. He's happy to take risks defensively in order to load up on attacking options. But yeah, in, in knockout competition, um, one bad game can cost you dearly. So um, we'll have to see how that uh, how that progresses. Match day six showdowns are one of the great things about the Champions League. Michael, you watched one uh, in Chelsea's group, in Group E last night, between AC Milan and RB Salzburg. Um, it was Milan who, who got the win in the end. What did you make of this game? How did it look? I think the interesting thing was the age profiles of the side. Salzburg's side was 24 and under entirely, whereas Milan's match winner was 36-year-old Olivier Giroud. And I think it was... I mean, Milan obviously deserved the win. They, they won 4-0 and probably wasn't unfair. But I thought it was quite interesting, really, when you think about it in, in a wider sense, because Salzburg, obviously, one of the Red Bull clubs, one of the clubs who have been kind of shaped by the beliefs of, of Ralf Rangnick and loading up on young players and that kind of thing and of course Milan were the club who had an agreement with, with Rangnick decided to ditch him um, and instead kept faith with Pioli as Maldini as the sporting director and you know one of the players who you definitely wouldn't have had in your side if you'd kind of gone towards that Red Bull model would be Olivier Giroud I mean he's you know at the wrong end of his career probably 10 years past his sell-by date in kind of Red Bull <laughs> terms. And here he was, two goals, two assists, just a brilliant centre-forward. And uh, yeah, I'm quite pleased to see Milan in the in the knockout stage. I think it's the first time for, is it nine years or ten years? Um, quite extraordinary for a club of Milan's stature to have been away from the big time for that long. Yeah, I think it was yeah 2014-15, which I saw from watching the goals show with James, our very own James Horncastle. Um, but it, it sounds almost insulting t- to Milan to say that they are just kind of building year on year. But because of that fact, you think, well, yeah, take it take it stage by stage and just see how you get on within the knockout rounds because they've they've been they've gone so long without reaching the the latter stages. And you know, we are still talking about the second best second most successful side in the history of of the competition as well so as i say it almost feels insulting but just given where they have been in in previous years um then to to get to the the knockout stage is still a a big achievement for them well our colleague ahmed walid's had a close eye on milan all season really and we asked him earlier to give us some insight on their tactics uh, what it might mean heading into the champions league knockouts where their strengths and weaknesses lie uh, so here's ahmed walid on the the active and adaptable stefan pioli when it comes to ac milan I've, I've been impressed with them considering the squad they have this season i think pioli is doing a great job with the players he has so in possession they're still a work in progress they're not that great uh, they are a bit left side dependent, especially on Teo Hernandez and Rafael Leao, who are probably their two best players going forward. Giroud's having a great season as well, uh, not only in terms of scoring, but also in terms of uh, hold up play or dropping to link a play. Um, when it comes to out of possession, the active defending from Tomori and Kalulu helps a lot. They're both having uh, a great season as well, continuing on their performances from last season. And we can see that when they're dropping to man-mark the forwards, their speed helps them in terms of recovery. Also, Mike Magnon behind them 
is proving that he's essential to AC Milan. We saw that in the Inter game where probably he he, he helped them win the game when uh, when Inter had the upper hand in the second half. And last season, he the goals he prevented were about four goals. It differs 4.3 or 4.6 if you checked Opta's data or um, Statsbomb's data. But he was uh, the top or second, depending on which data company you're going to check. Well, Milan City rivals Inter went through as well. It was basically results between them and Barca that decided uh, second place in this group. A 1-0 win at the San Siro and then that 3-0 draw at the Camp Nou. Really the big uh, difference here. Not going that well in Serie A. Simone Inzaghi, I I suspect, um, uh, quite relieved that his inter side have got through to the knockout stages because uh, I dare say there may be some pressure growing on him. As for Barca... Well, they head into the Europa League, absolutely not ideal, not part of their grand plan. Uh, sort of scratching my head a bit with, with, with Barca here, guys. They've they've conceded four in 12 La Liga games, but 12 in six Champions League games. Um, is that something potentially stylistic, Michael, between La Liga and, and the extent to which they can control possession and moments of transition, maybe less so in the Champions League? Is it completely random? Where are we at with Barca and Xavi a year or so in? I think they've been all right. I mean, it's a tough group for them in the Champions League against sides who, in a way, are a little bit more established. I mean, Barca in this competition every year, but feels like a kind of a new thing, certainly a new thing for Xavi. Um, and yet it's quite a small sample size of, of results. I'd be reluctant to be too damning, even if uh, I gather financially it's pretty bad for them to be going at this stage. I think as well, with, with the greatest of respect to the teams in La Liga, Barcelona have basically beaten all the teams they're expected to, but their losses this season have been to Inter and Bayern in the Champions League and Real Madrid in La Liga. So any bigger test they've had against a bigger side, they have lost so it shows that they aren't quite you know where they want to be I know they're still in it's a bit of a silly phrase but in transition I know that you can't really say that too much but yeah I mean you look at their squad on on paper and you go through their forward the players in the forward areas and it is just frightening just how much quality they have and even in the, the midfield areas obviously Pedri and, and Gavi Frankie de Jong you could include in that as well but they, they have the ability to just dominate possession as you say Ali but they just feel far too open in transition and against higher quality opposition they can just pick them off and I think even though it was a bit of a dead rubber that Bayern Munich game um, in the previous match day was was evidence of that as well so I think they just basically need a bit more of a stronger structure um, in defensive areas starting probably with defensive midfield you think Busquets is far past his sell by date uh, to carry on Michael's phrase that you just need a bit more of a defensive destroyer to to screen the defence um, because Busquets legs have gone let's sort of have it right he's good on the ball but unable to to do as much off the ball so I think yeah if they can afford to um, then they need to sort out the defensive midfield and quick Probably my favourite group was the one in which FC Porto and Club Bruges progressed over by Leverkusen and Atletico Madrid. This was an absolutely bonkers group with some bonkers individual matches within it. Porto topped it, having lost their first two games, which included a 4-0 defeat to Club Bruges at home uh, and then topping the group. Sergio Conceição's in charge has been for some time now. I note that Porto made the quarterfinals in 2018-19. 
And then in 2021, in between, skipped a year. Last year, didn't make the quarterfinals. So maybe that's the, the sequencing uh, hint that we need that, that they'll crack on here. And and quite a lot of players impressing as well, it, it, it seems, with Porto. You know, they've got graduates all over elite European football with the likes of Vitinha, now with PSG, Luis Diaz, of course, Eder Militao, Diego Dallo, all from the last five seasons or so. And, and it looks like they've got some more individual players really thriving. Uh, you've got Taremi up front, who's maybe less likely than others to, to reach you know, one of the, the leading lights of European football only because of, of his age. He's, he's 30, uh, the striker, but performing absolutely unbelievably. Uh, and then the, the interesting one for me is Galeno, who I, I think was Luis Diaz's replacement, really, after Diaz left. And I'm not sure that everyone was particularly excited about Galeno when he signed, but he seems to be absolutely thriving. And uh, another real sort of exciting difference maker playing um, for this Porto side. Then you've got Club Bruges, and this is what we really love, Michael. Um, they've got former Stoke player Carl Hufkins in charge. So he proved as a player that he could do it on a wet and windy Tuesday and Wednesday night in Stoke. And now in his first season as a head coach, proving that he can do it in all climates on Tuesday and Wednesday nights at the very top of the game. Yeah, it's great to see. Um, as I said, I think... It's kind of been dominated by some of the lesser lights doing quite well this Champions League. I thought it was the first Belgian side to qualify for the knockout stages for ages. And then I realised that Ghent did it in 15-16, which I must have completely passed me by. Um, but I associate Belgian sides with Anderlecht kind of qualifying every year for quite a period and then never getting through to the knockout stages. They had nine goes at it, didn't get through. So for Ghent and Bruges to uh, to do it, I think is a bit of a slap in the face to them. I mean, when you look at the XG from their performances, they got a little bit lucky. Uh, that said, uh, they did beat Porto 4-0. Uh, really memorable occasion there. And then they lost 4-0 to them <laughs> in the reverse fixture. Uh, I've been interested in them playing 4-3-3 in Europe, but generally a back three domestically. So clearly there's some flexibility there. They switched to a back three in Europe this week and, and then lost. Um, you have to say that I think whoever draws them in the next round will be pretty pleased. But uh, yeah, it's great to see a, a Belgian side getting through. And yeah, let's not underestimate, they do still have some some really good players, some really exciting young players and and experience. So you go through just some of them, Andreas Skov-Olsen, a great attacking talent, sort of midfield forward. You've got Tejan Buchanan, really exciting young Canadian winger. I think he can also play wing back as well. Um, they brought in uh, Jutkla, uh, I think that's how you pronounce his name, Spanish forward. Um, they brought him in from Barcelona and he's already scored seven goals in, in the league for them this season. So um, an exciting forward play. They've obviously got the experience of Simon Mignolet uh, in goal. Um, and the second Fulham midfielder we'll speak about, Dennis uh, Adoy yes. uh, in midfield as well. So they are, they've combined, um, you know, really exciting young talent with, with a good bit of experience there. So yeah, good luck to them. Did you know Carl Hufkins played 72 games alongside Michael Dubry? Just looking at his transfer <laughs> marked page, you can look at, at um, the players that individual players played with. I was trying to see which of the Stoke players Hufkins would have played a lot of games uh, with. And actually, the guys that he spent the most time with in his career are other Belgian Dutch players, for the most part, from other clubs. But then just at the bottom of page one, 72 games with Michael Dubry. <laughs> really good to see. Um, one thing that I'm interested in, Michael, is the fact that Club Bruges and Porto are both third in their domestic leagues, 
but absolutely loving life on the continent. Do we think there might be something in, in the theory that for clubs who play perhaps in oh, outside of the top five European leagues, it's next to impossible to perform or overperform on both fronts? Yeah, maybe this season especially because it was so congested. I mean, it felt like there was a Champions League round every week. So, yeah, that would have been tough physically, I think. Right, one more team of the 16 that progressed to touch on. Um, Dortmund, who were in Manchester City's uh, group, they've got through it. Uh, Michael, uh, I sort of naturally inclined to like Dortmund because in my, my peak era of being a sort of classic student football hipster was when they really were just magnificent. Um, Blashikovsky and co. Um, so I, I, I want them to do well. Uh, are they a serious contender to go deep in the Champions League this year? Not sure. I suspect they'll kind of do what they usually do, which is they're kind of thereabouts rather than there. I mean, they've been okay in the league, fourth at the moment. They do tend to just have some complete meltdowns defensively. Quite a few occasions this season they've conceded uh, three goals. Um, so yeah, I'm I'm a little bit more cautious about them than a lot of other people are. Um, but they have got some great young talents. I mean, Makoko, 17, uh, is, is, is looking really good. Jude Bellingham as well seems to improve every year. Um, so yeah, they're exciting to watch, but I'm not sure I have them down as a real contender. Jude Bellingham is, is, is the standout name to me. And I'm interested to know, does he play a different role in Champions League football too in the Bundesliga? Because it's very notable how much higher his goals and assists numbers per 90 are uh, in European competition. Yeah, I mean, I think it's fair to say that he is running a little bit hot with his numbers in the Champions League. Um, I think he's equaled a record, hasn't he, in terms of teenagers scoring in the first three or four uh, match days of the, the group stage, I, I believe. But um, yeah, I do think he is... Um, yeah, picking up more advanced positions. I think he's taking on more responsibility. I think it was the the goal against Sevilla where he just sort of took yeah you know, took the game by the scruff of the neck and decided to to you know take the game to Sevilla. So it sort of feeds into his his maturity and his responsibility to to try and ad- advance the team forward when you know you've got such few games to play in the group stage of, of the Champions League and you need points, you need wins. But um, I actually spoke with Rafa Honigstein uh, about this and looked at his passes received across different seasons and you can see that he is at least receiving the ball in high areas compared to previous seasons never mind between the Bundesliga and the Champions League this season so he's just so versatile that he's able to I guess switch it up uh, as and when he wants well there we go I I hope within the last hour uh, we've been able to catch you up with everything that's happened in the Champions League group stages and look ahead to February's knockout stages. We'll uh, obviously have our focus elsewhere for the next few months, um, but it's been really, really interesting to go through some of the runners and riders, some of the more established names and and some of the so-called surprise packages. Um, Just a quick last thing before we leave the Champions League group stages behind. Just want to flag up how perfect, Michael, are four-team group stages Aren't they just such a good, solid vehicle for this sort of sporting competition? I really, really believe that. Um, it just it just works so well, whether it's uh, one set of fixtures against each other in the World Cup, but I think ideally two, as we have in the Champions League. The format itself makes me happy. And if I can't say that on my own podcast, then when can I say that? <laughs> yeah, I agree. I mean, make the most of them because soon, next World Cup, we're going to be having three oh. team groups. And soon in the Champions League, we're going to be having the Swiss League model, which uh, I'm not convinced by. 
So yeah, I agree with you. It's it's neat. I particularly liked it in the era where there was uh, sixteen teams in the Champions League and sixteen in the Euros as well. Four times four, I think, just looks really neat. What are the benefits of the Swiss model? What's the big plus? Well, I tell you what, we should we should do a, we should do a proper podcast on this. Okay. Okay, sounds like you've got some holes to poke in the Swiss model, but that's maybe something for another day. Um, let me just whiz through. Was that a, was that a cheese joke? It was. That's it, very good. Uh, yeah, it took me a couple, couple of seconds. Well done. And you missed my flag joke just before it, but the listeners oh, will enjoy. Yeah. <laughs> wow. There you go. Uh, I'm just going to whiz through groups A to what do we finish with? Groups A to E. Just just try and explain why I think that this is just the perfect format for this competition. Eight groups. Every single one of them's got a unique point spread. How good is that? For people who just delight in numbers, having a different point spread is just perfect. And even the points alone tell a story. Even if you take the team names out of it, you had Group A, 15, 15, 6, 0. Big whipping boys. You had in Group B, 12, 11, 5 and 5. Ooh, competitive. Like that. You had Group C, 18, 10, 7, 0. Good, a good solid range there from 18 to 0. Uh, group D, 13, 12, 6, 2. Not sure what's interesting about that one. We'll move on. Um, next up, 14, <laughs> 9, 5 and 3. That's a second place team going through with nine points from six game, which feels generous. That's for sure. Uh, then the tight one, 11, 10, 7 and 6. Five points separating the four. Uh, a team in Spurs winning a group with 11 points. Very generous. And a team going out with six feels horrible. Uh, in uh, in the second last group, you had 14, 14, 3 and 3, which is just a nice pair of pairs. And um, lastly, we've got 13, 10, 6 and 4. Just again, just nicely spread out, well balanced, no complaints from me. This is exactly what this podcast is about. It's exactly it. <laughs> well, Love it. Michael and Mark and all of their friends at The Athletic are working very hard um, providing you with the best football content on the web. So... Head to theathletic.com forward slash tactics to read all about it. Maybe someone will be tempted to write a piece on the best formats for elite level football action. Maybe not. Either way, we'll be back again next week on the Athletic Football Tactics podcast and we look forward to speaking to you then. Bye-bye. Sorry, I was just trying to work out if Huffkins had ever scored a header from a Roy Delap long throw for Stoke, but I don't think he did. He played for them in the championship. <laughs> The Athletic.